Mira and Jojen are sitting down by the fire and they're basically saying to each other, you know, what we're doing here now? What have we got to do? It's like I always imagine George Martin putting that down on the page, like, what am I going to do with these two? Yeah, I love it if you just tried to style it out and just be like, <laughs> yeah, bitches, you know what it's like hanging out with Big G. No? Oh, he just comes to, looks around at all the corpses and just goes, that was a wild night. <laughs> <laughs> I am hung over. Anybody else? Oh, there's nobody else here. Hello and welcome to part seven, my favourite number, of A Dance with, <laughs> <laughs> a dance with Dragons. It's Shark Live Royal, I'm Matt. I'm Dave and I don't have a favourite number because I'm a grown-up. You don't have a favourite number? I have a favourite number. Who has a favourite number? I my favourite number. I used to be four. It's now oh, seven. I, yeah. So, so what, what's what's changed then? Well, four used to be my shirt number when I played football. Uh, well, and now you've moved into the more forward-looking Cristiano Ronaldo type role. Uh, I've actually moved back into goal, but I just like <laughs> I just like the number seven. <laughs> anyway, we don't. Never mind. Carry on. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we're not here to talk about my number preferences even though that's what I've started the podcast with um, yeah no I did yeah move back seven, seven. you don't have a favourite how can you not have a favourite number I don't have a favourite number although interesting fact the building that I live in which is owned by um, I live in Cambodia it's owned by a kind of traditional Chinese family um, mm. and so it doesn't have a fourth floor it goes first floor second floor third floor fifth floor sixth floor seventh floor eighth floor oh, it's, it's four unlucky four's an unlucky number yeah Mm-hmm. So like all the all the buildings where I live, nobody's got a fourth floor. <laughs> it's like being John Malkovich, only with traditional spirituality. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, there's your, there's your number chat. Like that's what you that's what you downloaded this bad boy for. That's what you come here for. <laughs> and now we're going to move on to um, yeah our, our next part, seventh part of our read through of a dance with dragons. Obviously the uh, latest still. The latest book, George. Still the latest book in the Song of Ice and Fire series. <laughs> are you feeling a sense of betrayal, Matt? Are you, uh, are you, you becoming one of the pitchfork-wielding fans? <laughs> yeah, so um, so this week we're reading from a chapter about Reek. Uh, where she's, I think it begins, he heard the girls first. And um, we're going as far as... A chapter called... The Prince of Winterfell that begins the hearth was caked with cold black ash. So when you get to there, you should have stopped. Not that anybody does. I think people just read right through and then just let us catch them. <laughs> <But anyway. laughs> we stopped there anyway. I am the only person in the universe <laughs> who experiences a song of ice and fire at this sort of six chapters at a time sort of pace. glacial pace. Glacial pace. <laughs> when I get to the end of it, I'm going to be so happy, but then I'm going to be walking around talking to my friends about it and being like, guys, you'll never guess what happens at the end of Dance with Dragons. And they'll be like, yeah, I know because I'm a fan. So I read it. <laughs> You're well, a fan yeah. who's chosen to read it very slowly. Yeah. So this chapter about Reek, uh, Ramsey is on the hunt, and as we discovered last week, Ramsey's Ramsey a what? Goes, Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <When> Ramsey <laughs> goes a hunting. Uh, he's not looking for like rabbits and stuff. He's hunting actual, real living women. Um, 
unfortunately for him, and what a shame this is, he's uh, he's been unsuccessful this time. The girl's got away. Oh, your heart um, bleeds, doesn't it? Doesn't it just just bleed and fall out of your chest, flopping around on the floor with agony for the poor so, little tyke? Yeah. So the return with a severed head, just you know, as a consolation prize. Um, <laughs> How does the conversation go when they're like they're riding home? And Ramsey's really pissed, because you know that he's like quietly angry about it as well. You know, it's like somebody looks yeah, up yeah. and goes, "My lord, look, I know we haven't found anybody, and it was their fault, not yours, because you're amazing and they're shit." But what <laughs> would happen, right, if you was to just cut his head off and take it home anyway? And and Ramsey mm. just goes, "You know what? You're absolutely right." <laughs> Interesting point. I like the way. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, intriguing. So what you're saying, if I was to behead, you know, it does feel rather nice. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> so they have this big feast to um, sort of, it's like a consolation feast, I suppose. Um, and in the middle of it, Roose Bolton arrives and he does this sort of classic, you know, because of the just nice summary of his character. He basically empties the entire hall with one sort of quiet word. It's like, yeah. leave us. And everyone's just like, right, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he, he, he's, he just goes, Everybody out, and I kind of I love the contrast between his authority and Ramsey's authority because he is mm. like Roos is as much of a bastard as as um, as Ramsey, figuratively speaking. Mm. But there's just I, I wasn't till I saw the like this this whole chapter set up the difference between Roos and Ramsey, and the sort of difference in gravitas and sort of authority um, that I realised I, that's one of the things that really irritates me about the character of Ramsey is that anywhere else in A Song of Ice and Fire, if a character is this hubristically, stupidly violent, they get their comeuppance by the end of the chapter. And Ramsey's been around for four books, and it's never once caused him to sort of step on the wrong end of a rake and have it smack him in the nose, which just seems to me completely inconsistent with the rest of this this world. But here, you actually do start to see all of the failures in Ramsey's way of doing things Mm. um, by comparison with with uh, Roosh's way of doing things. And I thought that was actually, I, I really dug that. In fact, I thought that was great. Yeah, there are quite a few examples where they start talking about sort of tactics and stuff now, don't they? And um, and yeah, Roosh Bolton basically points out the flaws in, in the way Ramsey's approaching things. Basically, Ramsey's just so, he's all sort of, he's all anger and fire, isn't he? And um, yeah. his response to everything is kill someone. So they're talking about how they don't really trust Mandalay. Uh, two, mm. two of these phrases have gone missing along the way, and Mandalis just said how disappointed he is about that. <laughs> you can imagine how he said it as well with a little <laughs> smile. And um, and like Ramsey's response is like, "Why don't we just why don't we just kill the guy?" And Roos is like, "It's not as simple as that." Yeah, <laughs> you can, you, he almost face palms, doesn't he? He's sort of like because <laughs> yeah. like, Ram, Ramsey doesn't go kind of, "Hey, Dad," like puppy doggish, you know. Hey, Dad, why don't we kind of why don't we kill him? Killing him's a great idea, you know, in sort of a Scott Evil sort of a way. Which is absolutely what this is, by the way. Scott Evil with an even bigger <laughs> attitude problem. Right. Scott Evil, that's his name from now on. Fucking Scott <laughs> Evil. Um, but it's not that kind of puppy doggish enthusiasm. It's much more kind of like, we should kill them, for I am your heir, and I am a man, and I will kill things, and death is the way. And um, and, and Roos just has such a more developed tactical sense that his only response is basically... <sighs> sake <laughs> <laughs> I just love that you reduce this man whose patience is not terribly long to kind of sighing 
eye rolling <laughs> ennui and I really hope that's not a survival strategy for uh, Ramsey there yeah the um the reason that Roos is a little feels their position's a little more precarious than maybe Ramsey thinks is the fact that they they know that Bran and Rickon have escaped so they know that there are these two boys wandering around the north somewhere and if sort of they fall into the for them the wrong hands they'll be the mm. figurehead for any sort of rebellion and that makes obviously it makes their grip on power in the north slightly more tenuous than you may may think yeah yeah and that's the other thing as well about like i, I do quite like seeing the nuance here the same in a way it's the same as last week with with the melisandre storyline where i was like i just like seeing nuance in these characters who've previously been there to make you feel apprehensive and to convince you that characters you really love are going to die very soon yeah. um by comparison with that actually now we're sort of seeing yes they have had the upper hand and yes that has been annoying but they're not one-dimensional implacable evil bastards who are going to get killed in the third act you know there mm. there's a political reality being sketched here and i thought that was really good yeah and uh Roos's solution is going to be to um marry quote marks Arya stark to uh <laughs> to Ramsay in the most transparent this isn't really I Stark marriage of all time <laughs> but um, yeah yeah yeah. It's, it's almost at the same level as um, that episode of The Simpsons where they have Michael Jackson voicing a massive fat white dude <laughs> and and he's like my name's Michael Jackson and they're like I am Michael Jackson y- yeah <laughs> C- cool yeah, my name's Arya Stark yeah 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 definitely <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of that bit in if you've if you've ever seen the thick of it, the British comedy, uh, political oh, comedy, and there's this there's this bit where like they make an announcement which is a lot of rubbish, and then they go on the radio to say they haven't made the announcement, and and the guy's like, I'm not sure what plane of reality we're operating on here. I've already made the announcement. How can I deny it? And that like, the spin doctor's saying, Look, I know you made the announcement. They know you made the announcement. But they know that they can't say you made the announcement if I tell them you didn't make the announcement because if they do say I made the announcement, then they won't know what the next announcement is when I decide what announcement it is to give them. (laughs) (laughs) There are a a terrifyingly large number of similarities to be drawn, I think, between... (laughs) <laughs> between uh you know the a comedy based on the deep dysfunction of british parliamentary politics and a song of ice and fire <laughs> yeah well um the, the i thought this is this was a little bit sort of on the nose from uh from from the from the author but just as Roos is kind of being the the voice of reason as compared to ramsay here um mm. just as we in case we forget thing just how ruthless and dreadful the dad is as well we yeah. um uh, Roos sort of takes theon because he seems to have an idea of something to do with him now um and as they're sort of riding away from from ramsay they have a chat about how sort of ramsay came to be and this sort of Roos's basically rape of ramsay's mother yeah. under basically under a tree where her husband was hanging because uh, he killed her husband as well and he sort of he describes it with such a sort of a matter of fact um sort of cold detachment as well i mean yeah. the act is bad enough but uh, the thing that chilled me as much as that was the sort of way he describes it it's the real um sort of sort of the way of talking is this real sort of psychopath isn't it yeah Just yes completely absolutely unhinged. that's it 
yeah, yeah, very much. And it's it's you know it's it's crazy, really, isn't it? Like yeah, the the kind of um, I don't know whether to describe it as immoral or amoral, but it's one of the two. Mm. Um, just just yeah, just with a flat voice, how he's just kind of like, and then I did this. And yeah, I mean, le- yeah, ex- exactly as you say as well. Lest we become, lest we feel too warm towards him because he's the only person we've seen so far who can kind of oppose this total bastard mm. uh, that is Ramsey. It turns out, oh, that's because he is a bigger bastard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's just so um, cold and unfeeling, and just he, uh, he's a he's an amazing villain, really. But I mean, he talks about this dreadful thing he did. And it's not. There's no hint of obviously no hint of remorse or anything. And he just sort of. There's not even a hint of that. He he sees it as a particularly important moment in his, in sort of anyone's life. He's like, yeah, I lost a fox and my horse was lame that day. So all in all, it was a bit of a dismal day. It's just so matter. And then yeah. he starts talking about how, um, he knows that Ramsay killed his real firstborn son Domeric. Yeah, and, and um, just doesn't really care. Yeah, and he's like, yeah, I've got this new wife now. Ramsey will kill any other sons that I have there. But, you know, again, he's sort of just like, kind of shrugs his shoulders because he, he yeah. sees, in his mind, that stuff isn't really core for some reason. It's just well, sort I, of, yeah. I, think it's, I think it's that he's just very, very fatalistic, perhaps. Hmm. He's just like, you know, he's like, there's no alternative in this world to being the biggest imaginable bastard, so that's what I am. Hmm. And so is Ramsey. So there's no fighting that. Like he's almost like the ultimate social Darwinist. In a sense, hmm. then there's a, there's a parallel between this and that kind of, uh, you know, the risk of falling into Godwin's law. You know, like there is a very the kind of like Nazi ideology was very hmm. much we're gonna like this is just how it is. It wasn't even like I just like it's good evidence that Hitler was fueled by hatred, but so many more people were just fueled by the fact that this is how power works and there's no point standing against it. Hmm. Um, uh, and, and you know, that's, that's what, that's what became the sort of killing machine of the, the third Reich. Um, yeah. just, you know, power is power and there's no fight in it and I've got the most power. So you're all fucked. And yeah. you've got nothing to complain about. Yeah. I think it's, it's a really good example of how like everything's relative as well. Like if you, if you compare mm, yeah. him to, if you compare him to sort of Tywin Lannister, Suddenly, Tywin looks like some comparatively warm and actually compassionate guy. <laughs> <He> does, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he seems to have experienced an emotion at some point in his life, <laughs> yeah. right? Like yeah. the hell. And and he he has some and Tywin at least has some emotional connection to members of his own family, and you don't really feel that Roose has any connection to anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, totally, totally. Yeah, so Tywin. That brings us on nicely to Tywin's son, Tyrion, uh, who is uh, on this ship with uh, the Red Priest, Makoro. Um, and uh, if you remember, we last we last saw Tyrion when it would do a, him and Jorah were put on this ship to head over towards Marine to mm. uh, to return, to, to go to, da- to Daenerys. Mm. Uh, so they're on the way... Um, and Tyrion's got a bit of downtime to sort of get to know this Penny, um, his uh, yes. sort of dwarf girl. Um, Who she's to, yeah. probably the best person to speak to because Sajora's just sort of stomping around, being moody and not wanting to yeah. speak to him. 
Yeah. So. Brings, there's something increasingly emo about Jorah, isn't there? He's just <laughs> yeah. ev- all of all of who he is seems to be tied up in staring moodily at a distant horizon and just hoping that he's being dramatically lit by the setting sun. <laughs> Jorah, sit down for fuck's sake. <laughs> I can't, <laughs> I'm feeling. <laughs> yeah, he's just like that, isn't he? Yeah. Um it's I mean Tyrion is so bored, isn't he? He's he, he says you know, when he was on the um, on the river, there was something new to see every sort of five minutes. And he said, when he's on the sea, it's just blue sea. There's nothing. Once you're out of sight of land, it's just a horizon. It's just nothing um, to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he spends some time speaking to Penny. Penny still blames him for um, her brother's death. We get a bit of her tale again. And it's a really sad one, isn't it? Of how they oh, tried yeah. to flee and went from place to place, and the unintended, well. Uh, I suppose it wasn't really an unintended consequence, but the consequence of putting this generic hit out on a dwarf um, yeah. meant for her and her family. There's this, uh, there's this heavy sort of the boredom is broken up by this heavy storm, um, yeah. which Tyrion rides out on deck. He basically lashes himself to like the mainmast and just sort of <laughs> just enjoys it. And he's just like an exhilarating um, experience, and it it yeah. really gets him gets him going, doesn't it? I love that as well because you know if you, if only you'd grown up going to Alton Towers once or twice you know if roller coasters had been a presence in his world it would have been fine but no he has to get his kicks by strapping himself to the masts of ships in storms yeah <laughs> I imagine there must be something quite exhilarating for somebody who's been kind of chucked around by the tide as much as he has figuratively speaking to kind of be in a position where everybody's experiencing the same thing so for once he's not at a disadvantage and he can just Mm. enjoy it yeah 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 definitely um this opens a bit of a door for him doesn't it with that he has a few drinks as well meets penny on the sort of forecastle of the ship and they have this sort of making up because last time he spoke to her she threw a drink in his face and um, they sort of, they sort of make up, and she tells this story about her. Her dad was a famous um, sort of mummer, so a sort of travelling entertainer yeah. uh, called Hot Bean. And um, mm. <clears throat> Penny looks back quite fondly on how he was uh, like all the kids used to follow me around the street, and he was really popular and stuff. And Tyrion a really hates these sort of derogatory names, doesn't he? Um, like when he hears Hot Bean and Penny and things like that, he's he, that really irritates him and also he's he's quite he's really jaded about the whole when yeah. people are, are, are curious about dwarves and stuff he just mm-hmm. thinks he, they don't really like you they just think you're a freak you know yeah and yeah. it's a, it's a, obviously a much more um cynical and i don't know depressing way to look at it i suppose very much well, i don't i Isn't it weird in this scene seeing... First of all, there's two really interesting things. The first is Tyrion interacting with somebody somebody else who has experienced what he has experienced in a way Mm. that he probably probably never has done before, you know. Because almost almost all kind of dwarves at this point in in this story, it seems, are kind of laughable figures of fun. Um, Mm. And, you know, there's no other lordly dwarves. Um... But the, um, but, uh, sorry. And the second thing is that um, he's he's like somehow he's the more cynical of the two of them. 
Like, mm. she has this actually quite sort of touchingly naive, you know, for all that she's really hurt, and she's very clear about that. She's, like, she, she says, you know, all, the, all they would have done, she's saying, you know, why didn't you come down, get on the pigs and do the jousting with us? You know, mm. all they would have done is laugh. And my brother always told me it's, it's nice when people laugh because they're happy. Mm. And, you know, and there's, whereas Tyrion's like, yes, but they're mocking you and life is bleak and your personhood has been degraded. And that, that's almost undeniably the case. But I find it interesting that this girl who sort of grew up in poverty, you know, with, a, uh, with what for this world is a serious kind of handicap socially uh, mm. as much as physically, um, somehow has a sunnier outlook than he does. You know, she's she's experiencing grief for the loss of her brother and sort of, you know, she's having a bad time in her life. But mm. actually Tyrion conceives of his entire life as one endless bad time. And I do wonder which one of these two characters is actually better off, you know? Yeah, and it's all sort of just tied up in pride, this, isn't it? It's all about yeah. Tyrion's pride. And the, the sort of point that Penny's making is when he's saying, oh, they're only laughing at you because of this and that, she's saying, you know, why does it matter? You know, if people are being nice to you and they're laughing along and stuff, then why does it matter if they're laughing at you rather than with you? And I suppose it depends, you know, that can that can be trivial or it can be everything, can't it? It depends yeah. what kind of person you are, I suppose. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, obviously they're very different. Um, this A lot of these conversations are all sort of around Penny trying to sort of subtly or not so subtly move Tyrion towards possibly joining her to do the sort of pig pig and dog joust thing. She actually comes out um, towards the end of the chapter and says, do you want to tilt? And Tyrion basically like, angrily tells her to sod off. And then sort of, it's only when she goes away, he sort of suddenly thinks, was that actually a euphemism? And did she actually <laughs> do something else? Yeah. Should I have responded with perhaps slightly more gentlemanly decorum one way or the other <laughs> in responding to that? Like somebody coming like, do you want a little uh, little some sound some sound little little some sound some sound? No, <laughs> it's cold, cold. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, all right, I'll leave it then. Sorry. <laughs> um. So so that that sort of that curtails the uh, the blooming relationship between those two. Um, yeah. That night they actually sail close to this um, cursed land called Valyria, um, mm. where they made the quality swords back in the day and mm. um, there's a, a red sky in the distance and apparently the, the place is that the land is always on fire over there and yeah. they sort of sit and stare across at it at night, it just, it's just Tyrion and this, this Makoro, the red priest yeah. who sort of sits up all night by a camp, by like a little fire on top of the on the top deck of the boat mm. and I thought this was, uh, yeah I thought this was really interesting and yeah. really atmospheric I, I, I thought it was actually Really worth having that that priest there just to set the sort of tone of the of the, in the scene. Yes, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I was going to say at the start of this chapter when we were back on a boat, I was like, "Have I gone back half a book here? Are we, you know?" Because <laughs> I got into a sort of vibe where Tyrion's just on a boat somewhere, and things are mm. happening to, you know, like a kind of aquatic version of what was happening to Arya for basically every book after A Game of Thrones, but. Mm. Um, uh, so I was like, oh, priest, whatever, whatever. But you're absolutely right. Like he, he really makes this scene with the kind of drama of it. And it's interesting that like even he seems to be ambivalent about these fires. 
even mm. he is kind of looking at them and he's kind of like he doesn't say these men are scared of them they shouldn't for they are fires gifts from the red god and he's great he's, he's he, he himself is kind of like yeah they'd prefer we're elsewhere and at a certain point you kind of feel like he's saying well you know I don't really blame them mm. um, uh, it was also a really fucking dramatic way to introduce this place which is really central to the whole kind of mythology of of um, of the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Like, it's mm. it's kind of like Atlantis, but it still exists, but nobody yeah. lives there. And that's very strange. You know, the, it's... it's. I can't really think of a good example. I mean, Xanadu, perhaps, the remains of Xanadu, which are just somewhere in China, um, mm. you know, of a place which used to be of the most spectacular importance and significance and is now, like, just not there anymore. It's incredibly yeah. creepy, isn't it? Yeah, and all these sort of fires form a bit of a natural barrier. So you you sail too close, and you basically end up just sailing up a it's either an inlet or a river that's just smoking basically, um, and you find you can go no further. I wonder if this is. Do you think this is sort of yeah, just just like long term volcanoes that just start that, and that's what's happened. Like the sort of our world explanation for it is there's just been some massive. So maybe even two or three volcanic eruptions in it, and it's just created all this. Because it just seems like yeah. they just talk about fire just arrives from out. I think I think they might even say from out of the ground, um, and just washes this entire um, civilization away. Yeah, I mean that would seem to be the most straightforward explanation for it. And you know, fire from the ground is definitely a very powerful sort of image. I wonder though, what, what do you think about this? This, this is this is a, a a patent trademark Dave, like like sloppy fan theory. Basically, it's nothing as strong <laughs> as he slept with her and had this kid, and therefore he's him, sort of thing. Um, it's sorry, there's some nodding outside <laughs> my house. Someone's going, yes, it's a Dave prediction. Yes, come on. Yes, <laughs> yes, let there be a celebration at this time. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so this is this this may be a, a somewhat kind of uh, sloppy Dave fan theory, um, mm. rather than the more sort of well structured. He slept with her, and therefore he's him. Sort of idea of the thing, but um, uh, what if this is kind of a, a fire version, like a malevolent fire to to counterbalance the malevolent ice of the mm. um, of the the White Walkers. The others, sorry, I should say. Um, yeah. Like, maybe, what if there is kind of a... If there is such a thing as the sort of... I don't know, the sort of extreme version of ice and fire and then the versions of ice and fire that can actually get along. And maybe mm. that's the story that's emerging. I, I'd be, mm. I would be surprised since he's taken four or five fucking books to even get us to his in-touching distance of dragons, fire, others, ice, eh? So perhaps introducing nuance at this point would be a foolish thing, but I do wonder if there's something more sort of supernatural to it, and if it's like if it's not like ice bad, fire good, but mm. that this is Valeria shows us a way in which fire itself is kind of a malevolent presence in the world in A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, well, Valeria is all tied up around dragons as well, isn't it? Which, which yeah, is the, yeah, totally. Which is our has been our shorthand so far in this series for. The sort of mm. the fire side of things, like the the as as the opposite to the sort of ice uh, mm. and the others and stuff. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's a probably pretty pretty good theory. Um, but we'll we will see because yeah, it still remains a bit of a mystery, doesn't it? Um, really yes, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we move on to a chapter about Bran. 
Bran's sitting on a. He's been made a little mini mini weirwood throne, and it's yeah. kind of comfy. Um, <laughs> good because good because if I'm reading this chapter correctly, he's gonna be sitting there for a long fucking time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and to be honest, the whole area, the whole sort of um, situation for them now is comparative comfort, isn't it? After the the horrible trek through the north, now yeah. they're sort of you know three square meals a day in a warm bed to sleep on, kind of comfort. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, Bran started flying around as ravens. He's been sort of picking up this skill now. Yeah, um, it's quite it's quite interesting. There's this old story about um, how the ravens used to speak, and um, like I think actually, I got the impression it was a lot of like people used to be able to, to sort of take control of ravens, and that's how they used to communicate with each other, like over yeah. long distances, and it then slowly evolved into them becoming basically like as, as we have messenger ravens like messenger pigeons messenger pigeons um, yeah just d- dramatically more gothic and badass messenger pigeons yeah, is basically yeah. what they are now in this particular world right yeah yeah uh, there's this uh, now relatively famous quote that Jojin gives which is always associated with Song of Ice and Fire which is uh, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies and it's a bit of a meta George Martin uh, quote to drop in there. Quote. <laughs> Do you think that's a way of George, now he's got to this book and realised that his character list has just got totally out of hand, a way of saying, <laughs> no, it's fine, it's, fine. it's a bonus to you. More, more lives, <laughs> more lives, eh? more characters, more perspectives you get to experience. You should be thanking me, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, it's just a chance for all of us reading to feel good about ourselves in comparison to people who aren't. <laughs> Join the club. If you uh, are thinking this is too warm and comfortable, just to remind you, there are various dead things gathering outside. There's um, a bear. Um, there's a few other sort of whites all, all sort of wandering around outside the cave, but they can't get in. In fact, yeah. I think I think Summer ends up bringing the bear down and they sort of gorge themselves on this rotting meat. Um, which is pretty disgusting. Yeah, um, yeah and it, it, it definitely counts as a, a good thing, right? Like, yes. eating that meat <laughs> is a desirable thing to do. Like, I, 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 I was quite struck by, like, he's inside the wolf at this time, and it's another one where at one point the wolf goes and sniffs somebody else's ass. And I'm just imagining what's going on in Bran's brain as that, mm. as he's inside the wolf and that kind of happens. Mm. Um, and he's inside this thing that eats this partially sort of decomposed bear. It's just imagining me. Oh yes, delicious, nice. I felt very good about that. Mm. Yes, mm. yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they're also surrounded by these children of the forest, and they're all kind of like sad, and um, there's this feeling of melancholy around the place because yeah. they're dying out and leaving the world. And I think this is an interesting thought that Bran has, that um, he compares it to what he thinks men would be like um, if sort of if humanity was was going out, and he thinks you know men wouldn't be sad to be angry; they sort of go down bloody and fighting. And, yeah. Um, and I, I thought that was quite interesting. And I, I thought the, the the children of the forest thing, the melancholy aspect, it felt very elves in Lord of the Rings sort of feel to it there as well yeah yeah very very much um, 
but where the elves in Lord of the Rings were like like badasses they were still like there was a sense of when they were leaving the world it was like demigods leaving the world it was like watching mm. Greek gods choose to go and be somewhere else in mm. the Lord of the Rings whereas in this it's like it's very diminutive you know they're the children of the forest they're these little mm. ones these kind of mythical little gnome looking things <laughs> Um, no matter what their actual power may be, and there's a good amount of evidence that they are pretty badass. Mm. Um, but they're still kind of they're they're sort of lesser, um, mm. and it's definitely it definitely doesn't have the majesty of the elves, but it definitely has more melancholy because you have a sense that they know more. It's not mm. like oh the wisdom of the elves, which ultimately just makes them slightly taller human beings with pointy ears and flowy hair. <laughs> Um, is is much more like ah oh, they really understood how the whole world functions you know they they seem to understand something about the very lifeblood of this world, mm. um, which men humans just don't bother to do and don't bother mm. to sort of engage with. Um, I, I don't, how did you feel about the uh, about the bit where where brands like yeah men would have fought because it came off to me as like incredibly sad. Um, you know, they're saying, you know, we understand how the world works and, you know, this is how it is and, you know, that's, you know, that's it's sad but that's okay kind of thing. Um, and Brand's thing seems to be, not men, we fight and kill everybody and dominate everything and that's what makes us special. <laughs> what did you think about that? Did you find that strange or was that just me? Um, I don't know. I, I thought that was... Um, I always see that as the sort of one of the one sort of saving graces of uh it, it's sort of the it's well it's both it's kind of the the curse and the blessing that that uh, men have in these kind of stories uh that they sort of have this refu this this refusal to accept things as they are and mm. this um this fire to to, to want to, to change things and, and force things to change and impose their mm. you know own um will on 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 anything you know and, yeah. and not accept things the way they are and and that can be a blessing insofar as doing seemingly impossible things just be, just through sheer force of will but on the, on the other hand unable to sort of accept any sense of inevitability about things um, yeah so yeah i think it's an interesting point to make about it. and i think it kind of it's a it's a broader point about humanity in, in real life as well yeah. um it's kind of is our blessing and our curse to do that, to constantly try to change things and um, exert some control over things that maybe you can't and almost greedily go for the next thing and the next thing. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, it seems that sometimes it, it, sometimes it's a sort of lack of wisdom and sometimes it's, uh, it's kind of the sort of youthful arrogance that can get things done where... With oh, things that seem impossible done as well. I always, yeah. I always see it as a similar to sort of older people and younger people, sort of mm. the older people saying, "Oh, you know, certain things are as they are, and you shouldn't try and change them, and you're wasting your time." It's sort of laughing at the the foolishness of what they remember they they did when they were younger. But at the same yeah. time, it's those young people taking the risks and making foolish mistakes who will yeah. change the world as well. Yeah, 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 very much. Yeah, that's an interesting, that's a very good way to find a kind of positive in it, because I definitely got into a very Tyrion Lannister place with this. I was like, God, is that it? Like, we can either be, um, like, violently arrogant 
and exclusive of other things or weak and doomed to death like mm. it's very much you know the, the, the you know it's a it's a it's a worldview that kind of says humanity has a choice between the, the triumph of the will or extinction and mm. you know i very much like to i think there is evidence that it is possible for um for that the choice not to be so stark Mm. Um, but you know, here it's a song of ice and fire. We know that it's all about the stark existential choices, right? Yeah. That and the and the zombies, obviously. That stark existential choices and the zombies. Yeah, yeah. I suppose it, it can be one or two things. It, it it can be if you look at it negatively, it's the sort of flat earther. Um, don't give me any information. Don't tell, give me any facts. I, <laughs> I believe what I believe. Head in the sand, yeah. sort of thing. But yeah. on the positive side, it's a sort of rocky, it, it ain't over till it's over, sort of optimism <laughs> and determination. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, but it's, a, yeah, it's, I find that quote actually much more interesting than the, than the reader lives a thousand years, but, um, a thousand lives. But, um, there's a, obviously we could spend an hour talking about it. Um, yeah. which yes, we won't. You know, we, we could, but, but yeah. let's, yeah. let's dial down the sharky philosophy. <laughs> Um, something else that's a little uncomfortable here. Bran um, is increasingly, uh, with increasing regularity, taking over Hodor and sort of trying to justify it to himself as well. And it just feels a little bit like he's crossing a boundary here. And there are a few beats in this chapter where you wonder, is he, you know, is this good for him? Is he still a, Is he still going to be a good guy if he does more of this? Like... Because we saw mm. the sort of final destination yeah. for skin changers who go too far with that guy yeah. like Varmir. Yeah. Who you lose sort of a sense of humanity. Oh, that's very you? interesting. Yeah, you really do lose a sense of of why individuals matter, right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean I mean Hodor's this kindly okay, it's pretty simple, but he's this kindly guy who's been looking after Bran for so long. And Bran can somehow put aside the fact that whenever he sort of goes into Hodor's head, Hodor's personality ends up sort of curled in a corner, shivering and crying effectively. And mm. Bran somehow finds a way of being okay with that. Mm. Like, oh, he doesn't mind that much, I'm sure, really. It's only for a little bit. It's only every so often that I do it. Yeah. And I just thought it's yeah. it's very child. Obviously, it comes... It, Emphasizes how how childish Bran is, but also how you can do that. You can yeah. just sort of incrementally build up to doing something terrible, or keep doing something terrible because you can make excuses to yourself. Yes, yeah, that's very true. And there's definitely all sorts of ways in which the Bran story can go south, but quick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I do I wonder about that because right now I'm having trouble seeing the Bran storyline as not having basically fizzled out because he's not moving anywhere. Um, and obviously the point of the storyline is that he doesn't need to move anywhere. You know, he's he's a demigod now at a certain point, right? Hmm. Like everything that lives within anywhere, he can jump into the head of. Um, but he's, yeah, but because he's not moving, I'm like, oh, boring. What's he got to do with, <laughs> where is he swinging swords? Boring, where is he going next? And... Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you're kind of nervous for his morality, and I'm nervous for whether I'm going to get any more plot out of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm I'm fairly I'm fairly interested in what's happening with Bran in terms of yeah what he's going to turn into and stuff. Um, 
I'll agree with you insofar as I mean, Mira, Mira and Jojen are sitting down by the fire and they're basically saying to each other, you know, what we're doing here now? What have we got to do? And mm. I've, got, I've got to admit, I was thinking exactly, I'm thinking, damn right, I've no idea what you've got to do. And I think almost, it's like I always imagine George Martin putting that down on the page, like, what am I going to do with these two? <laughs> they're just sitting there now. <laughs> Bran's got stuff to do and turn into. What are these two going to do? <laughs> yeah, I, that's very true as well, because they are basically, they're stuck in a particularly kind of uh, natural home solutions version of uh, the, you know, the day of the dead where they're stuck inside the house and the zombies are outside, right? They're not going anywhere unless they find yeah. some magical tunnel from here all the way back down to where the zombies aren't. Um, yeah. So, yeah, what the, I mean, so Jojen's going to die, let's be honest. He's, he's on the way out. That's going to happen. And then what's... <laughs> What's Mira going to do? She should sit there and be like, well, I guess I'll learn to be a child of the forest, I suppose. <laughs> Can't really fit through any of their doorways, but I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, it's like Gandalf living with the hobbits. It's not going to work out. <laughs> what well, makes you so sure that Jojen's a dead man? Um, because he's been saying the kind of uh, tantalizingly gnomic things <laughs> which characters usually say and then die before they have a chance of explaining Mm. that is my theory this is a very meta theory it's not oh I saw the way he looked at the ceiling with a pale sickly green pallor over his clammy face no it's absolutely that I don't think George is going to George is going to let me carry on having interesting little tidbits of plot from somebody Mm. that that is so clearly close to death like it's not going to happen I don't trust you George I don't trust you (laughs) <laughs> uh, now uh, Bran towards the end of this chapter uh, he, he sort of he, he thinks back about what he what he hoped was going to happen when he got here and he was hoping for a sort of a Wizard of Oz style kindly old wizard to make him walk again and obviously that hasn't happened he sees that as a foolish dream now and he's hmm. trying to make the best of what it is um, and this is when he starts to uh, continue his journey down the as you said, demigod road. Yeah. He's given this weird sort of green seer red paste, uh, which he eats. Yeah. And um, it's like really disgusting and then gets a little bit more tasty with every bite, apparently, or every slurp. Yeah, I've, I've, heard, I've heard both smoking and heroin hit you in the same way. <laughs> right. Like, and, yeah. and, and booze, actually. Like, probably some yeah. beers are like that. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's very true. Very few people enjoy the first drink they have, but they enjoy several of the next three or four thousand. <laughs> I like the idea of this now, rather than being some grand sense of weird meta visions that he's having. He's just getting high. He's just getting, yeah, sorry, I I realise I may have undercut the dramatic force of this particular <laughs> vignette, but at the same time, this is absolutely <laughs> what it is. Go on, Bran. Go on. Eat it. No, no, it's, you won't believe what you'll see. Honestly, it's great. It's like another plane of consciousness, man. That's absolutely what it is. This is Brown, age 15, at his first house party, getting given something inadvisable and going with it. <laughs> yeah, well, the visions that he has are quite amazing, aren't they? The, he basically seems to be looking out through the eyes of sort of heart trees in various godswoods, especially the ones at, the one in Winterfell. Um, yeah. And going backwards in time, so he sees his he sees his dad sitting under the tree, um, cleaning his cleaning the um, the ice that big sword he used to kill uh, to execute people, 
Um, and he sort of tries to speak to him and, he, and Ned looks up as if it's sort of the wind going through the leaves. I thought this, this actually did um, still grab me a little bit, like just seeing Ned appear again and have yeah. his son try and talk to him and be unable to. Oh, yeah, that was that was pretty heartbreaking, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I, although I, did, I quite liked the way that this was achieved because it would be very easy for something like this to be a really sort of lazy-ass deus ex machina piece of storytelling where it's like, mm. hey, because magic, you get to see everything. Go! But actually, he really ties it to this this sense of how everybody's been responding to Weirwoods throughout the whole series and the significance they have. And you, you know, he's mm. he's showing you pieces of what feels like a bigger universe and a bigger feeling. Yeah, and um, and I think that's the difference between a hack writer and a really talented one is that this yeah. all feels like part of a world. Yeah, because we've barely gone past a, a weirwood tree with a face in it without someone saying it feels like someone's watching me. Um, yeah. So I suppose that, yeah, that does make sense. It's interesting that, yeah, he sees he sees his dad when and he's obviously a little bit younger than, than when he died. And then it flicks back in time further. And I think he sees this girl and this, this, this boy fighting. And he think, yeah. at first he thinks it's him and Aya, but then realises that that's not right. I think that's yeah. Liana and Ned. Yes, uh, yeah, Ned. I, I thought that too. And I thought that was really great, like, like just because we only ever saw Ned as, like, the, you know, the, the only honourable badass in Westeros. Yeah. Um, and then we see him as a kid and we see the similarities between him and his son and, you know, all of that. Hmm. Yeah, and then it sort of, it goes back, back, back and back as we spool into more and more history and he sees these little snippets as uh, as they're getting older and older i think there's one with um a, that really struck me of like a load of really hard-faced sort of men standing around looking sort of imposing uh yeah. sort of and, and he, he he gets a feel of that was a he basically gets a feeling like that was wherever time period he's looking at was a much harder time and you're thinking compared to where he is now that must be pretty bloody hard <laughs> yeah 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 yeah, um, it, it, I I really like the ending bit of this. I felt like it built to this kind of really, kind of m- melancholic, almost operatic vision of even if you've forgotten it, violence precedes you. Mm. And I thought I thought that was a very powerful idea. I I think about that a lot um, as a historian and a British person. I'm very conscious that you know. On the one hand, I'm not directly responsible for an enormous amount of violence, but I travel around the world and I meet people who are the uh, children and grandchildren of people who very definitely experienced violence in order to pay for the schools, the roads I went to school on, you know, Um, Mm. like that whole thing I find uh, very, um, very difficult and a very compelling question. And I thought this is a really interesting image of it, you know, even without the element of sort of moral complicity, but like, you know, he's whatever was going on in that weirwood that he was looking at, it's in Winterfell. You know, he's a direct descendant of whoever had the power in that place at that time because the Starks have been there since the crust on the earth formed. So, mm. you know, so, it, you know, he, in a sense, he's got to be looking at somebody in that scene and being like, Grandpa? <laughs> yeah. And I thought, I, I just thought that was very interesting, that idea of forgotten but still inherited violence, I find quite, quite interesting and intriguing there's a a theory which um which you sort of came quite close to talking about there in that chapter which um i don't know if it's true or not 
because it, it goes beyond the um, the story. But I think we're going to, if we just hold that to the end, um, just in case people don't want sort of, we're going to increasingly get towards these now. As we get into the to the end of um, to the end of what's been written so far, yeah, there'll be these um, theories and ideas which I think are still worth us talking about, but maybe yes. not in the main cast. In case you you want to sort of be coming to the next one quite pristine. So maybe yes, yeah. we'll just come back to that at the end. But if you just remind me before I we will. finish, and, Actually, and I'll, I'll I give that... adequate warning before we uh, before we. I think we should do that. We should do a sort of week where we do sort of, right, now we've got to the end of it and Dave's finally allowed to read these fan theories. You know, (laughs) what do you think of these various theories? We should do that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Next chapter is John. Some good news at the wall. The the blizzard or snowstorm has stopped. You've got to take your good news (laughs) while you can. I was going to say, taking the positives with John Snow. (laughs) Um, John's John has this uh, dream of of having uh, basically greenhouses up at the wall because you have they have them down in um, at Winterfell so they could grow crops in the winter, but um, that's followed very quickly by the realization or the reminder that they've got no money, so that's never going to happen. Yeah, um, they're riding out beyond the wall because um, there are a few uh, of the new recruits who want to take the vows before a heart tree like John did and he, th- yeah. he John feels this is important enough to, to risk going north of the wall um, yeah. Bowen Marsh who's always the sort of the cautious, most cautious of the sort of people close to the top obviously yeah. urges against it but John John pretty much says you know I've got ghosts to protect me my direwolf um, mm. which seems you know fair enough he has been useful in the past but the ghost does pretty much leave as soon as they sort of pass through the gates he just runs off so you wonder just how much use he's gonna be yeah um, but anyway so these six new recruits who are gonna swear their oath including satin who we remember from the uh the battle at the, like, at the at satin the who can be relied upon to turn into the baddest assist fighter that the night's watch has just to compensate. What's his name? Is it Satin? Yeah, but he insists we call him Satin the Terrifying. I tell you what, call him Satin without calling him the Terrifying and you will soon have a reason to be terrified of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, there are also two wildlings who are taking the black amongst them, which is interesting. So it's showing that... I quite like how uh, the authors handled these um, wildlings being integrated it's not sort of black and white. It's very, um, they're obviously very different levels of of how well they're integrating. Some of them don't get on at all. Some of them aren't trusted at all, but would like to join. Some of them are all in, like these two. Going to take a black cloak and, and, and yeah. away we go. Um, and I, I quite like there's that there's a obviously a massive difference between there are wildlings and other wildlings. It's not just like one clear group. Um, yeah. There's been a bit of trouble with the spear wives, the uh, the sort of fighting women who've come up to join, and um, John's going to solve this by sort of stationing them just in their own castle, basically. He's <laughs> said with a big sign outside saying "fucking try it, I dare you." <laughs> well, he's sending Iron Emmett, his um, the guy who's been training up the recruits to command that castle, and Emmett basically sort of moonwalks around when he hears the news. It's like, oh yeah. <laughs> he basically does the quagmire giggity giggity. 
uh, <laughs> from on from on horseback. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? I love the, the the description of it as well. John looked at him and he could tell that he didn't know whether to like sing songs of praise or be really angry about it. <laughs> Particularly when he gets told that his companion's gonna be Dolorous Ed. <laughs> so so I you know, I'm a very unreconstructed man. I don't really know how to talk to women and the 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 other man you're sending me there is a dude who manages to find reason for sadness in puppies and sunbeams. Thanks, <laughs> boss. Cheers. Yeah, yeah th- this did strike me again, though, as we already saw him send away Gren and Pip and his friends last time to Eastwatch into the Night Force thing, and mm. um, these are these are the last couple of you know Iron Emmett. And especially Dolores Ed are the sort of another couple of very loyal men to John, and mm. they're off as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, if it was someone else sending these people away, I would think that there's like they're trying to undermine John and create yeah. sort of space for a takeover. But he's yeah. doing it himself. So. Yeah. And <laughs> so it's some kind of tactics. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it can't still be that kill the man, a kill the boy thing. Mm. Um, that I mean, maybe it is, but it's not like he was terribly close to either of these. They were trustworthy. They were good men, but it wasn't like you're my best mate. You are, mm. you know, it wasn't like that at all. So, yeah, I don't know why. Maybe, maybe, he, maybe he's just more worried about putting people he can trust in areas of authority where he where he can't directly control, where he's not there to do himself, than he mm. is about keeping sort of friends close by him. Yeah, yeah. He's probably thinking. Maybe he's thinking a bit more big picture. He's thinking I can run things well enough at Castle Black, so I need trustworthy people to be running the stuff in areas where I can't directly influence it. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> true. Makes sense. Yeah, so this, this could be an image of him being like, "No, I, I'm, I am the baddest assist. I am the fuckest upest. Bring it on." Um, mm. And just you know, re- actually, really backing himself to be able to handle things. Yeah. Yeah, um, on on the way to their uh, on the way to the heart tree, um, so the they um, they come across a wildling camp which includes a giant, and they're gonna sneak up on them. And as they get there, the giant wakes up, and it's sort of like like oh shit moment. <laughs> the giant comes away. Yeah, well, and all the way through this as well, I've been like going north of the wall. Are you definitely coming back when it's dark? Will you? Hmm. Like I've just been waiting for the shit to get real, and then they turn up in this place full of wildlings who clearly recently saw all of their friends killed by people who look like this. And there's a giant. And I was like, "Well, off you go then, John." Yeah, no worries. <laughs> yeah, uh, it looks like it's going to turn into a bit of a bloodbath. And then Leathers, who's one of the wildlings who's joining up um, and taking the black, mm. actually, luckily enough, he speaks giant. So um, he sort of he sort of calms the guy down, and in fact, they effectively bring them in, don't they? And they take in this group of wildlings. It's a, they take a yeah. bit of convincing because this um, rumor of burning Man's Raider has turned into um, the the crows, the Night's Watch, have been burning anyone who surrenders. Yeah. So people yeah. are very mistrustful, and John sort of thinks, "Oh, thanks a lot, Melisandre. That's another thing." Yeah. Although, although that. actually, if I was if I was him, I'd be thinking, "Thanks, Stannis." Because, oh no, I, hang on a minute. I've just thought of. Wasn't the whole point of burning Mance Raider that he was a king and the king's blood thing was the thing? So, mm-hmm. so why did she burn Rattleshirt instead? He's king of fuck all. 
a king of a few stolen bones, I suppose. But mm-hmm. so, what's that about then? I don't know. Maybe she decided that the um, the switcheroo, yeah, um, was more useful. Was more useful than the king's blood. Yeah, or, Which or, does seem or strange, she's just like, I've yeah. got the king. I need a, I need a king. Don't really need one right now. Going to need one at some point in the future, though. I'll just keep him hanging around. Pet king. Yeah. King's blood farm, eh? Yeah, no, it's a good point, actually. You'd think that, um, given the opportunity to have a bit of king burning, Melisandre well, would, <laughs> she, would find She loves a king better. burning, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, the alcoholic palmed the drink that time, didn't they? <laughs> 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 that is the best way you could possibly have put that. Yes, yes, yes she did. <laughs> it was basically the alcoholic sort of sneakily pouring away the vodka and replacing it with water and going, mm, this is delicious. what I'll do here. They'll never expect this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they return to the, they return to Castle Black with this uh, with this giant and the wildlings, <laughs> and you can imagine the reaction of the Night's Watch as this giant wanders through the gates, thinking. What is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> we are through the looking glass now, aren't we? <laughs> I tell you what, though, that's a. That, I love that John keeps giving him these moments precisely because he's not in the habit of dehumanizing, uh, dehumanizing the wildlings. Just as a matter of course, you know, he's always calling them the, the free folk and saying, you know, you don't need to kneel, but you do need to obey, and all of that. Mm. Um, and I quite like that he's taking the opportunity to carry on doing that because he's the guy who gets to be like, "Yep, got me a tame giant, bitches." <laughs> yeah, I can imagine Bo and Marsh saying, "Now, just just how tamed is this guy?" <laughs> he's fine. He's Although, fine. admittedly, I am going to give him a castle all to himself, far, far away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's fine. Leather spoke to him. What did he say? I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Details. There's, a, there's there's so much here with up at the wall, which I just I'm just thinking it just so much could go wrong here. Uh, every single thing I see John do, I think that could be a disaster. And I suppose the problem for him is he's in a situation where every, he's got to make a choice every time, and every one could be a disaster. But this could be. I wouldn't be at all surprised if next chapter the giants rampaging through Castle Black because of sort of some inside some inside job with this wildling guy. But, oh, no, I know, I would quite like it if he's um if he's rampaging through Castle Black, but it's actually because he's having a bad dream and halfway through it he wakes up and he's like, uh, 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 oh, so, sorry, sorry, everybody, sorry, everybody. Sorry, very bad of me, sorry. Whatever that is in, in giant, right? <laughs> yeah. There's just corpses everywhere. There's people screaming. <laughs> oh, God, come, did it happen again? <laughs> he comes to, he's like, oh, oh. And John's like, how could you do this? And the giant's like, still mates, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it if you just tried to style it out, just be like, yeah, bitches, you know what it's like. Hanging out with Big G, Big Daddy G, eh? Bigger than the then, no? Everybody's really angry still, eh? Well, you'll you'll get it, you'll get it. Don't worry, you'll get it. Yeah, or he just comes to, looks around at all the corpses and just goes, that was a wild night. (laughs) (laughs) I am hung over. Anybody else? Oh, there's nobody else here. Oh, they're all dead. What a great party. What a great party. <laughs> that was off 
the hook. <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? Anybody? Chest bump? Oh, sorry. I've killed yeah. you now because my this chest lifts up a hand for a high five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anybody want a high five? Everybody's like, fucking no. Under no circumstances. <laughs> yeah, well, that's as skitting on an event that hasn't even happened um, <laughs> <laughs> like nice you'd love it though wouldn't you frat boy giants i'd pay to watch just, that film yeah just wait next chapter um just round off this chapter actually with john um he gets a letter from stannis and for stannis it's pretty upbeat um he's taken deepwood mott um as we sort of saw mm, with, from the yeah. um asher chapter yeah and he's now marching on winterfell because he knows that Roose Bolton and his army are on the way there to um, to use it as the place to, to marry Arya Stark. And yeah. John thinks from a tactical point of view here, the key thing is the first person, basically the first person to reach Winterfell is going to win this. Yeah. And he knows that if this was Stannis' brother Robert, he'd be sort of force marching yeah. his guys to, to get there in time. And he's a little concerned, John, that Stannis is much more cautious and that could prove a problem if uh, yeah. if that means the Boltons get to Winterfell first. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's also you, sent Mance Did you like the, the... Sorry. There you go. I was going to say, I, did you like the um, the the horrible irony of this this situation where he... John uh, Stannis names um, uh, Arnulf Karstark as one of the people he's really relying on who's going to turn out for him and we've just heard the conversation between the Boltons mm. about how Karstark's been turned and Stannis doesn't know it yet um, yeah. so it's really got like it's 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 textbook example of dramatic irony and it's not going to go well for Stannis is it mm. yeah because Karstark was the one who was um, trying to get Stannis to march on the Dreadfort straight away wasn't he yeah. And yeah, we 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 hear we heard in the uh in the Reek chapter that that was a bit of a sort of yeah, that was a plan from the Boltons to try and lure Stannis into a trap, which didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, to have someone like that who Stannis is obviously obviously taking a lot of advice from, probably largely because Stannis is one of those people who <laughs> and this is ironic as well, um really values loyalty and repays it and Karstark yeah. was the first of the Northern Lords to come on side so that would sort of place him above reproach wouldn't it as far as Stannis yeah, is concerned it would oh man well it's strategically great move by Bolton then getting getting Karstark to flip mm. but it's not going to go well for Karstark either way now is it on the one hand you've just screwed over Stannis a man who treats you know otherwise routine betrayals of honour as an excuse to gut you with your own teeth <laughs> or Roos Bolton, who just uses existence as an excuse to gut you with your own teeth and skin you <laughs> afterwards. You know, like bad choices at hand all the way around for the minor lords of the north at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, I I, I wonder how deep the Karstarks are in with the Boltons, how long, how far back that goes. Because I'm yeah. not sure how how involved they were with the Red Wedding, but I get yeah. the feeling they were they were either sort of they either let it happen or they were directly involved yeah yeah um because that was that was after the sort of big fallout wasn't it and yeah um, yeah yeah absolutely. and i think they were the only guys who came back after um yeah. from like with the boltons yeah like all the all the other northern houses got decimated on the way back 
Um, yeah. And he just brought the car stocks back. So yeah. I get the feeling that they've been in with the Bultons for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up is Daenerys. Across the Narrow Sea. Um, ah. She's uh, wandering through the refugee camp where all these um, Astapori who have got the plague are. Oh my goodness, this is grim, isn't it? It's bleak. Bleak. Mm. And it, it has to be said, in its description, not a million miles away from slums I've actually been in. Like, mm. this is this is not George Martin getting carried away. This is, this is fairly realistic and absolutely horrible. Yeah, and it's even sort of, it's even how do you fix it and even attempts to fix it or to mitigate the <clears throat> the worst of it can yeah. can make things even worse. I mean, there's this bit where they, they tried to separate families, like healthy from sick, mm. and then the healthy people got sick anyway, so they just mm. sort of torturously broke up all these families from their dying relatives for nothing. Yeah. And um, it's sort yeah. of just what a thing to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I like her. Um, she's... Daenerys is told, you know, you shouldn't go down there, you could get sick. And she's saying, oh, you know, my genes, basically, my genealogy. Yeah. Um, Dragons don't get sick. Yeah, we don't get And I just, I almost read that as, like, my character shields. So I'm a main character, of course I'm not going to get the plague. <laughs> <laughs> character shields are high. <laughs> that, that is very true. That is absolutely what she's thinking there. <laughs> Um, although, as we've seen, your character shields are not a thing you want to rely on when you're in a George Martin novel. No, not but at all. They are not reliable protection. That's a miscalculation. She's saying, yeah. she's saying to Sebastian, could you imagine the fan reaction if George if George killed me off by just giving me the plague? And like, you're just thinking, he's, 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 he's had worse. He's had worse. Yeah. I was going to say that. Not only can he imagine it, he probably does when he needs a bit of an emotional lift. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I I thought that sort of line is usually an invitation for a character to get sick the next day and die. <laughs> but because we do know there's something a bit magical about Targaryens, Valyrians and dragons, perhaps yeah. that's not the case. I don't know. Yeah. So she takes a few of her loyal people down with her. As I said, one of them... and. Speak, while we're on the subject of him, um, Sir mm. Barristan, right? I remember quite a while ago now, you saying that you were uh, you you grown quite fond of Sir Barristan, and therefore yeah. you were expecting his imminent and horrible death. I, just, I just thought it was interesting I have, that he's, and I was. <laughs> it's interesting that he's still standing, <laughs> and it feels yeah. like you've made him a marked man, but he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's still there. <laughs> I walked up to him in the the great bar of uh, of all characters I've ever liked grasped him by the cheeks and kissed him once on each cheek and just walked away. <laughs> you are not alone from this world now. Um, I said. Um, no, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving the fact that he's still alive. I'm loving even more the fact that when Dario Naharis comes back later on in this chapter, he calls him Sir Grandfather, which is basically <laughs> Westerosi for badass grandpa. And I'd like to oh, say, yeah. fucking called it. We called <laughs> it, ladies and gentlemen. That's oh, something yeah. we called. I think um, every chapter he appears in from now on, we should have a little celebration as well. When Sebastian's yeah, still alive, a few party poppers. He's still here. He's still here. <laughs> like an elderly relative's birthday party. He's around. Let's. We've got a party for the simple fact that it happens. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah, still standing. So, um, Daenerys goes for this walk. 
Um, and and then they sort of they give out some food, realise there's not a lot they can do for them, return. It's just a chance for her to sort of... I think she she's trying to deal with some of her guilt by just mm. walking amongst them and taking a direct hand in burying some of the dead and things like that. As much for sort of her as for anything else. Mm. Um, yeah. Later on, um, her scribe, Miss Endy, uh, has this dream of the Astapori scratching on the walls trying to get inside. Yeah. And again, yeah. it's just sort of sums it up, I suppose, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, the next day, um, there are these wedding preparations that are being discussed because obviously the wedding between Daenerys and and uh, his dar is still going ahead. Yeah. Some of the traditions here, Daenerys isn't interested at all in taking part in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what what is an examination session to sort of check her like all her sort of parts are in order downstairs? Yeah. Which, which which a to be honest, she needs to avoid because she's pretty convinced that everything isn't in order down there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I like her the fact like she's trying they try and tempt her into doing it by saying, "And there's a special cake that you get," and she's like, "I'm not interested, <laughs> even if there's yeah. cake." <laughs> I'm so- this is abs- this is fucking Portal. Have you played Portal? No. Yeah, yeah. At the end of this, there will be cake, and the whole <laughs> theme going through it is the cake is a lie. Um, and it's but just I, I just I love I, I love the sort of presumptuousness with which this is presented. As sort of and of course you'll do this. Like of course, magnificent queen that we're all supposed to be really frightened of and spend all of our time showing overt respect to. Uh, hmm. But now you're a woman in the context of marriage, so every, all other bets are off. Uh, get your clothes off, and we'll start thinking about your fertility somehow. <laughs> also, yeah. also, what exactly? Like, it's so clearly a, a, a ceremony of humiliation before entering a new family, more than it is an ability to check fertility. Because hmm. what are you going to do? Look and be like, yeah. yeah, it's a naked woman, that. Definitely see a lot there about fertility. Yeah. You can't. That's not the way it works. Yeah, yeah. I, I assume it isn't particularly scientific. I'd imagine there's some kind of, some kind of, like chanting going on and some kind of yeah. sign given. And I would once imagine again, there's a lot of scientific evidence. Exactly. Such, such an environment has always worked out very nicely for Daenerys in the past, hasn't it? In the context <laughs> yeah. of childbirth and fertility, having people stand around and go, "Now look, I know the chanting's a bit weird, but it is important and it does work." Because she's like, no, it isn't, and no, it fucking doesn't. Fuck <laughs> off. Yeah, so a number of these traditions, there's also the sort of, the wife washes the feet of the, the man as well, and she's like, no, that's not happening either. And <laughs> I, it, is, it is interesting what you say about the, um, a lot of the people around her are saying, like, in, like, hushed, still, like, reverent, but hushed tones, and look, you, you've got to do these things. This is tradition, and it won't be a proper yeah. marriage otherwise. And then, like, his dad breezes in, and because he's so close to sort of getting what he wants now, she's like, we're not doing some of these things. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, no worries. It's about time. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep, no, fine, fine. Absolutely no problem. I don't need the ceremonial humiliation when I'm going to kill you on our wedding night. That's not a problem at all. Yeah. He he says that he's got an offer of peace from Yunkai um, if Daenerys makes him king. (laughs) (laughs) at which point you're like is it possible that you haven't been arguing entirely in my own particular interest is it (laughs) Hmm, perhaps maybe a little bit (laughs) I just uh, I just think he he just can't help 
constantly like asking for more Hisdar. He's a he's yeah. a serial gambler, isn't he? It's yeah. like that. Um, if you ever played like football manager games, where you can ask yeah. for more, like there's a bid comes in for one of your players, and you can either accept or ask for more money, and he keeps going, ask for more money, ask for more money, <laughs> ask for, and then sooner or later he just goes rejected. You go, oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> don't ask, don't get though, eh? Yeah. So that's his that's his latest request from Isdar, who, to be honest, he's keeping the city quiet, so he's basically getting whatever he wants at the moment. Yeah, um, yeah. This discussion's interrupted because, as you say, Dario ret- returns. Yeah. And um, and Daenerys immediately blows off Isdar to go and see him, um, just because she wants to see him, basically. Um, yeah. Dario's got some pretty bad news. Um well, a lot of bad news. So, A, the army that's on its way is much bigger than they previously thought. Yeah. And B, um, the Second Sons, commanded by kindly old brown Ben Plum, um, have switched sides. And this Turned really, out to be a shower of bastards. Yeah, and this really um, sort of hits Daenerys for six, doesn't it? She's, um, she's gutted because she yeah. had a genuine sort of... It's almost like daughter father affection for brown ben yeah and um she's really upset yeah so once again she's failed to learn the fundamental lesson of being a major character in a song of ice and fire which is that people will betray you and your experience (laughs) will be unpleasant (laughs) yeah um her response is reluctantly to um basically cut off the refugees the astapori close the gates and no one goes in or out anymore Mm. And she's just abandoning them, and she feels there's nothing else she can do. But um, I mean, it's pretty. Even so, we, we, I mean, it's hard to judge considering the circumstances she's in. But still, bloody hell. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. It's it's cold. It's it's punch after punch. This isn't it. Yeah. So, you know, you need to when you're in this situation, feel that there's still a bit of love in the world, Dave. There's still a, a bit of loving to be had. And um, she, she, she brings Dario to her chambers and... That was ridiculous. Bit, bit of Marvin Gaye. Bit of, bit of let's get it on. Um... <laughs> But, well, yeah. yeah, so, I mean, this, let's be honest, this has been coming for a while, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, what do you think it, what do you think it means for sort of the wider politics here? Is she, is, is this her saying, forget about his dar, we're going to run off into the sunset? Or is this her saying, I'm going to sort of have my cake and eat it? Or is it? <laughs> and, and, and if, the cake if, is a lie, is, Matt, don't forget, the cake <laughs> yeah. is a lie. If that is the case, I mean... How long before Dario decides? You know what? His dad's gonna have to go. He's. I'm not. I'm not having him. Yeah. Sort of taking Daenerys to bed as well. I wonder. Um, I wonder if this is. I mean, I think Daenerys has been fairly consistently presented as a character who just lets her emotions run away with her, um, rather than a really savvy strategic thinker. But at the same time, I do quite like the idea of her being. I'm tired of this slow kind of attritional, you know, build-up of all the reasons I'm going to lose. It's mm. time for the death or glory charge. 
Um, <laughs> and her, her, her way of starting that is to get his dar to bring all of the families to it and then sleep with somebody else who then goes and kills his dar and pisses off the entire city and she runs out born on a tide of angry fire <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well it's certainly a yeah I, I got that impression it's more just a um, just her thinking I, I need to do this just because I just need to do it I'm feeling so crap and um, it's something I've wanted for so long, and you know what? It, I don't really care what the consequences are anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely far more that than I think it is a, a calculated risk. Mm. It's far more, fuck it! <laughs> let's go! Speaking of let's go, that brings uh, us to the end of our um, of our sort of part for today. We will, we will, for once, draw a veil rather than having a 20-page love scene. Mm. So next week, uh, we are reading from uh, this next chapter, which is The Prince of Winterfell, beginning with The Hearth Was Caked With Cold Black Ash. As far as some, a chapter called The King's Prize, uh, The King's Host Departed Deepwood Mott, is the, um, is the uh, sort of first line. It's page 550 of my book, but it might be different if, if you've got a different one, different type, different publication, different issue, whatever. So... <clears throat> There you go. That's where we're going to for next week. Yeah. If you want to get any good, feedback good. into us about the cast or the book, sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com is the place to go. Sharkliveroilpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at sharkliveroil. So that's it for this week. Until next time. Yeah. Dave. Until next time. Enjoy your reading. You always do, I, I believe know. I will. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. See you next time. Lovely stuff.